Well, the book of Hebrews. I'm, uh, I'm going to warn you up front, we're not getting through the entire book of Hebrews in five weeks. <laughs> uh, we're we're going to get roughly about halfway through, a little bit more, uh, just into the beginning of chapter 8. Um, and, uh, and that's probably all we're going to get into in, the, in these five weeks. And we're not going to go verse by verse. Um, again, if we want to do verse by verse, uh, just for the first eight, seven or so chapters, we'd be here for a year and a half. And... Uh, we probably wouldn't get out of the first chapter after five weeks. So we're not going to go verse by verse and, and hit everything. Uh, we're we're going to try to see it from more of a bigger picture um, idea and, and, and grasp more of what the, the writer of Hebrews is, is getting at. So that's uh, my disclaimer up front. And then uh, we're going to do the last half of Hebrews probably in the fall. Uh, now that I've said that, I'm committed to it. So uh, and I have to get working on the second half, never mind the first. So... Uh, but that's going to be kind of the plan, and we'll we'll, we'll go ahead and do it that way. Um, I uh, I encourage questions. Um, that gives me an idea where where you guys are at in understanding what I'm saying. Uh, it helps to clarify things. If uh, if you have a question, chances are someone else has that question. So please go ahead and ask your questions as we go along. Um, and uh, with that, why don't we uh, we kind of get started? And uh, with the book of Hebrews. What I want to do is kind of start off with a bit of a background about it. Uh, so just some, some general information about the book of Hebrews. Um, if you notice in your notes there on page 5, um, again, we don't have, we're not going verse by verse, so we're not going through the, uh, we don't have the verses in here like we did for the, the course we did in Galatians. So it would be great if you brought your Bibles with you to, to follow along. Most of the verses that we'll use are, are going to be up here. Uh, but some general background to the letter of, of Hebrews. Who wrote the letter? In fact, anyone got a King James Bible? Anyone bring a King James Bible? New King James? I'm not sure if that won't work, but go to, the, go to the very first page of Hebrews. What does it say as a title? The Epistle? To, to the Hebrews. That's it? Uh, anyone have the old King James Bible? Oh, poor King James. He's. It's right here. Terry's just not speaking up. Oh. <laughs> what does yours say, Terry, at the, at, for a title? Just says Hebrews. The, the, the older King, uh, King James Version. Yep. Mine says Epistle of Paul to Hebrews. The Epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. Um, that's not actually in the original manuscripts, um, but, uh, but the old King James Bible had the Epistle uh, to the Hebrews by the Apostle Paul. Uh, whereas all the other translations just put the Epistle to Hebrews. And the reason is, uh, it's a great mystery. In fact, there's a, there's a joke that goes around in, in some uh, Bible colleges about who wrote the Epistle, who wrote the epistle of Paul to the, book, to, the children, to the people of Hebrews. Because um, no one really knows. Uh, there is no introductory uh, part to it. There's no saying, this is Paul or Peter or John. It just kind of dives right into it. And so many people have, have thought, was well, it Paul or maybe it's someone like Barnabas or Priscilla and Aquila? In fact, pretty much everyone in the New Testament has been credited at one point with writing the, the book of Hebrews. Um, I'm trying to put my name in there, but I don't think it's going to fly. Um, and it's interesting, if you read the book of Hebrews in English, you would swear it was Paul. Uh, a lot of the phrases that are used in, in Hebrews are phrases that are, we find elsewhere in Paul's letters. 
uh, almost word for word. It has the same feeling of a Pauline epistle. It, it covers much of the same things that we see in other uh, epistles. Um, but um, it's, it's, it's interesting because when you read it in Greek, you would swear it wasn't Paul. Now, I don't read Greek. I have enough trouble with English. Uh, but apparently in the Greek, it's, it's a masterpiece. It's, it's a classic that, uh, that Greek scholars, when they read it, it just, it's such a, a flowing, easy book to read, and it's, it's a work of art. And if you'd read it in the Greek, you'd swear Paul wouldn't write it. Uh, I don't know what that says about Paul's writing style and the other Greeks, uh, other Greek epistles, that I guess it's, he's more um, simple and choppy and, and so forth. Um, so there's been many, many thoughts about who wrote the, the epistle. Uh, one theory I thought was just kind of interesting was that it was written by Paul in Hebrew, because it's written to the Hebrews, but it was translated by someone into Greek, which would make some sense. Um, the bottom line is, it doesn't matter. <laughs> we don't know. Um, and, it, and it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. I mean, at one point there was some, some question of whether or not it would uh, fit to the, into the canon because they didn't know who wrote it. And because they didn't know the author, they were hesitant to include it. Uh, but thankfully they did include it because Hebrews really is uh, one of the most important books of the New Testament. When it comes to understanding the gospel and the, the, the doctrines that we hold dear, uh, Romans and Hebrews are 1 and 1a. They are, they are so important to, to understanding um, uh, our, what Christianity really is. And in fact, with, uh, with Hebrews, it is the most Christ-centered book of all the epistles. It's the, most one, it's the one that's most focused on who Jesus is. And, and that's what makes it so unique and so special, more than any of the other epistles. And so um, I'm, I'm glad they didn't get hung up on who wrote it, because ultimately, who wrote it? God did. And it doesn't matter who the vessel was, it was God who wrote the book. Uh, now, when was the letter written? Uh, this is important more to give us an understanding of the context, especially when we start to look at who was written to. And, you know, some people have argued, well, it was written in the third or fourth century, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense, in my opinion, uh, because so much of this letter refers to uh, Jewish traditions, including the temple. And we know the temple was destroyed in 70 AD by, uh, by the Romans uh, as a way to kind of take out revenge over uh, Rome burning. And so they, they, they destroyed the temple in 70 AD. And if that was the case, then the book of Hebrews would have mentioned that. So we know the book of Hebrews was written before 70 AD. In fact, that we have writings of, of an early Christian uh, Clement of Rome, who's even quoting the book of Hebrews as early as 96 AD. So we know it's written in the first century. We know it's written before 70 AD. And if, if it was my choice, I, I think it was Paul who wrote the book. So if I inadvertently say Paul is the author, that's just because that's what I think. Uh, but I'll try and just stay with the author as much as I can. But, uh, but if it was the Apostle Paul who wrote it, then he probably wrote it around 60 to 65 AD. Now, why that's important is, what was life like for the Hebrews, or especially Hebrew Christians, in about 60 to 65 AD? What was life like for them? Was it pleasant? Was it easy? Was that, the that was the time when they were getting killed. It wasn't so much, it wasn't so much fun. It wasn't, wasn't the cakewalk, no. Uh, this is the time when there was great persecution going on uh, for, for any Jewish Christians. Um, 
it's you know roughly about uh, 20 years or so after the uh, apostle paul who is then saul was was getting permission to round up and arrest christians uh, they had already stoned stephen to death because of his faith um, christians were were not a well accepted group uh, especially in uh, in jerusalem and all of israel uh, simply because they saw them as enemies of god and uh, and they were ready to kill uh, as Paul says in Philippians, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. And so the, um, the letter was, was written in a time of great persecution, which is important for us to, to understand. And now, who was the letter written for? For the Hebrews, yeah. Uh, now again, just like the Apostle Paul, we don't know for sure. I mean, there's, again, there's no introductory comments about who wrote it and who he wrote it to. For example, when we read, uh, you know, open up the book of Romans, it lets us know that this is a letter written by Paul to the church of Rome. Or when you're reading the book of Ephesus, we see it's the Apostle Paul writing to the church of Ephesus. So we have that introductory comment so we know who wrote it and who he's writing to. In the, in the case of Hebrews, there really is no introduction. It, like I said, it just kind of dives right into it. And part of me wonders if it's because we've kind of lost the introductory, maybe the first few verses or so. I don't know. I don't think it changes the book in any way if we have lost it or not. But we, we don't know for sure who the, who the uh, target audience is. But we can discern, I think, who the audience is based on what we read in the letter. So going through the letter, it becomes pretty clear, I think, that it's writing A to Christians, but more importantly, it's writing the Hebrew Christians, the Jewish Christians. We see that based on the, the information that the, the author is using. He quotes numerous times from the Old Testament. He's, uh, he's using all kinds of Old Testament uh, imagery and, uh, and characters. And he's, he's assuming that the, these, this, um, this readership, the, the people he's writing to, have a strong foundation understanding these Jewish traditions. Um, the, he talks about how the, the prophets were our fathers, which isn't the case for Gentiles. So I think it's fair to say that it was written to Jewish Christians, and most likely they were in Jerusalem. And, and I say most likely in Jerusalem, or at least around Jerusalem, simply because uh, of the persecution that these people were facing. And, and Jerusalem really was the epicenter of, of all the persecution from, uh, from the Jews towards the Christians. So... Let's think about then why the letter was written. And, and again, I think we have to spend a little bit more time on who it's written to. Because that's really important to the book of Hebrews. Um, so much confusion is in this book simply because we don't know who the, the person is writing to. Uh, in fact, the two of the most contested passages in the book of he are, are found in the book of Hebrews. Anyone know what those passages are? Hebrews 6 where it talks about whether one can lose their salvation, and if they do, if they can repent and be saved again. And then Hebrews 10, talking about the one who sin continues to sin, and what happens to that person. And, and we're going to look at one of them for this part, and then the next, uh, next time we do the class, we'll, we'll look at the one in Hebrews 10. Uh, but there's so much confusion, and a lot of it is, is centered, around, centered around not understanding who the, the author is writing to. So let's understand why the letter was written, more importantly, who it was written to. So I think it's important to understand that they were genuine believers, 
and they were publicly baptized, meaning that they made a, a public declaration of their faith. Now, in our society, that's not a big deal. Someone gets up and says, I'm a born-again Christian, and you know, people might roll their eyes, but that's about it. Whereas back then, if you made a public declaration that, that you were a born-again Christian, you were, you were now seen as an enemy. It's like someone getting up and saying, I am now a member of Al-Qaeda. You're on a watch list when you say that. And, and that's essentially what these people were, were, were putting themselves under. They were now under the gun. People were, were out to watch for these people and what they're up to. And why I say they were genuine believers is, you know, we look at, at how the, the author is referring to them. He says, he himself has purged your sins in, in chapter 1, verse 3. He says, they're referred to as holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling in chapter 3. In chapter 4, he refers to them as fellow believers. So he's, he's including them with where he's at. In chapter 5, he says, you ought to be teachers by now. Would you want an unbeliever to be a teacher? No, you ought to be a teacher. He says that they, they've been sanctified in chapter 10. He says their hearts have been sprinkled clean from, a, from an evil conscience and then now cleansed. And so he's, he's laying out this idea that there actually are genuine salva, uh, salvation or genuine Christians. And then finally, their need is not salvation, but patient endurance, uh, which is the product of genuine faith that he, that he expresses in chapter 10. So I want you to see it's important that, that when we're talking about Hebrews, he's not writing to the Hebrew nation as a whole. He's writing to Jewish Christians in particular. That's, that's important for us to understand. Does that make sense? Uh, some other things about these people. Can I go on or you want to keep writing the verses down? Just write the reference down because that's basically what this is referring to. Okay, can I keep going? All right, the next thing we see that they're not new Christians. Remember in Romans 5, he says you ought to be teachers by now. So they've obviously been saved for some time, so they're not um, uh, brand new to, to, to Christianity. They're well trained in their religious practices. We see that in the number of references that the, the author makes to, uh, to their beliefs and their, their bap- understanding baptism, the laying on of hands and so forth. Uh, they were under intense persecution and they were suffering in many different ways. Uh, they were experiencing financial problems. As a Jewish Christian, you would have been blackballed. So people wouldn't have sold things to you, nor would they buy things from you, which would cause you to go through a personal re- recession, <laughs> your own financial crisis. And so these people were, were under incredible persecution just financially. In fact, around this time, uh, the other apostles, uh, like Paul and Peter and so forth, they would go around to the other churches and they would, would um, collect funds in order to support the Christians in Jerusalem. They called it the Jerusalem Fund. So Christians in, in uh, Galatia or in Rome or in Spain or, or anywhere, in Ephesus and so forth, they would then pay or, or give money in order to help these Jewish Christians as they were suffering as a result of what they were going through. But they were also suffering from just you know, physical persecution, as we read what happened to the Apostle Paul or Peter when they were beaten for their faith. Uh, some were very passionate about God, where others were indifferent, uh, depending on, uh, because we see that in, in both parts of the book of Hebrews. 
uh, we see people that are really struggling with their faith. That's, that's really a, a big part of why this letter is written. It's, it's written to help these people with their faith. There, um, Ray Steadman, who is a, was a, a pastor uh, many years ago, he was a, an incredible pastor. He tells a story about um, how he was talking with this young man at the time who was, who was upset or concerned with the state of the world. Um, much like today, there's wars, there was wars going on. Back then it was Vietnam. And so he was concerned about how the, the world is falling apart and how people are not flocking to the Christian message. They're not receiving this message with joy. Instead, they seem to, to be spiteful towards Christians, uh, much like the case is today. Um, many people, they, they view Christians in a very negative sense. And as they were talking, uh, this young man, he came to the conclusion that the problem was really, was that Christians don't believe what they profess to believe. Think about that. I think that is so true of the church today. I'm not trying to be critical of the church. That's not my, not my purpose. I'm not an axe to grind against the church because we're the church. But I think if we take an honest look at the church today, we don't really believe what we profess to believe. I, in a simple sense, some of the core doctrines of what we believe is God is God, right? And God is in control, right? And He loves you, right? And He'll provide for you, right? Why are we so anxious and worried? Why are we so fretful about the future? Why do we feel the need to control? Good question. Good question. We, we take so many things and think, I need to do it. I need to make this happen. And we don't look and recognize that God is God. That God knows what He's doing. And He's looking after everything. And we'll, we'll get up and we'll say all these wonderful things. But when the rubber hits the road, we discover we don't really believe it. We don't believe what we profess to believe. We say, we sing songs. Uh, Jesus, you are my all in all. And yet we're not satisfied. Don't we believe that He's enough? Don't we believe that, that He is all we need? We sing the song. We'll tell other people about it. And yet we're not satisfied with what we have. So we have to go into, into debt to somehow finance our happiness. Only realize it never works. And so really a big part of the book of Hebrews then is getting believers to believe what they profess to believe. And, and that is such an appropriate message to the church today. That we might believe what we profess to believe. That we might believe who God says He is. That we might begin to live by faith in what we profess to believe. And so that's really the main purpose of, of why this, um, this writer is writing, uh, writing the book. So sometimes the book of Hebrews is seen as just a theological treatise, uh, something about systematic theology. 
And, and it's true. It is an incredible book on systematic theology. Like I said, it's, it's right there with the book of Romans. And, and if Romans is one, then Hebrews is 1a. And you can make an argument for it being the other way around. It's, it's right up there with understanding the systematic theology of Christ and Christianity. But it's so much more than that. It's really one of the most encouraging and practical letters of the New Testament with over 40 exhortations in this book. Over 40 exhortations of encouragement, of, um, of inviting the person to be, to be encouraged, to be strengthened, to um, uh, direct them. And so it's, it's such a practical book. And it's got a lot to say to you and I, in spite of the fact that we're not Jewish Christians. I mean, how many Jewish Christians are here today? Yeah. So the book on the surface may not seem to apply to us, but... When you start to understand it, it really does apply to us. I mean, going back through that list of, of these people who were, were steeped in their religious practices. Anyone grew up in the church? And you're just like me. You're steeped in religious practices. Been Christians for a long time. But we face persecution. Not the same way. I mean, no one's getting beaten for their faith, right? I hope not. Um, but we face it in a different way. We face just the whole challenge of who are we going to trust? Are we going to trust God in this moment, right here, right now? Or are we going to trust in ourselves or trust in another person or place our trust in another organization? Where is our trust? And, and so we, we very much, I believe, line up with the people of Hebrews. And so these exhortations that the author is writing to them is also very applicable to us to get us to believe what we profess to believe. And so what I want you to see that the book of Hebrews is primarily a book of encouragement for believers where the author uses doctrine as a means to strengthen the reader's faith. So yes, there's doctrine, but here's the reason. The whole reason behind it is to encourage us, to build us up, to provide us with confidence, so that we understand what we believe and why we believe it, and then asks us, now believe it. Now put your faith in it. Does that make sense? Does that sound like a book, book worth studying? Yeah. All right, there are two major themes in the, in the book of Hebrews. And the first major theme is Jesus is better. Period. He is better. He's better in anything you can imagine, anything you can put your faith in, anything you can put your trust in. Jesus is better. And what the writer to the book of the book of Hebrews is going to do is he's going to compare Jesus to all kinds of Old Testament heroes and institutions and show how he's better and why that's important. So he's going to compare them to the prophets. He's going to compare them to angels. He's going to compare Jesus to, to Aaron and the, and the priesthood of Aaron, to Moses, to Joshua. Uh, and then he's going to show how, how Jesus is a, a, has a better covenant for us. The whole idea is Jesus is better. He's the better way. He's the better life. He's the better source of life. He's, he is better in every way imaginable. And so that's, that's the major theme uh, along with the book of Hebrews. So he's being compared, and, and it's really for the point to exhort the readers to continue to put their faith in Christ, 
or to begin to trust Him more. So the first theme is Jesus is better, where the second one is now live by faith. Because He's better, because He can supply all our needs, because He's what we need and the only one to, to, to provide contentment for us, now trust in Him. Now put your faith in Him. Now there's a, there's a verse from the Old Testament that shows up in, in three New Testament books. It shows up in the book of Romans, it shows up in the book of Galatians, and it now also shows up in the book of Hebrews. Anyone know what that verse is? Okay, what's your guess? Habakkuk 2, Habakkuk 2 and verse 4. Yeah. And what does it say? Um, start something, something on the just shall live. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the last half, last part is really the, the one that's repeated. It's the righteous or the just shall live by faith. And so this is the verse that, that really these three books, Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews, is in some ways, you know, three books as a commentary just on this last half of a verse. And so what Romans focuses on is the righteous, the just. And it emphasizes the fact that we're now righteous. How God has made us righteous through the cross, where He died for us and we died with Him. And through our death with Christ, He got rid of the old person who is an Adam, and He raised us up as new creations, that the ones that are holy and righteous, acceptable in Him. And so the book of Romans is really a, a commentary on the fact that we're righteous. Some have called the book of Romans uh, the gospel according to Paul as being the emphasis on righteousness. Whereas Hebrews then emphasizes the fact that we will live. That life is in, uh, in Christ is under grace and not under law. That life with, with God is now ours because, again, we died with Christ. We are buried and raised up now as new creations. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ now lives in me. And so the emphasis on is now we're alive. We've been made righteous and now we live today, and Christ lives in us. And that's the emphasis of the book of Galatians. We don't live by law, we live by grace. And then finally, the book of Hebrews is now explaining how do we experience this? How do we access this grace? How do we access this life? How do we now live in light of the fact that God's made us righteous and alive? Well, now we live by faith. And so that, that makes Hebrews an extremely practical book for us. Because it's, it's going to, again, encourage us and exhort us to now live by faith. So I want you to see the two major themes. Jesus is better, and we're going to see that throughout our study. And then the other one is now live by faith. Amen? Does that make sense? All right, so if you want to turn the page... In your syllabus there, on page 6, you'll see an outline to the, to the book of Hebrews. Uh, or a basic outline, a simple outline. Uh, in the first 10 or in, in roughly a, a half chapters of the book of Hebrews, it's, um, it's basically the doctrine. Uh, the, the writer of Hebrews is laying out his foundation of what he believes for the most part. And so what he's going to emphasize is that Jesus is a better mediator for us. What's a mediator? 
A go-between? Yep. What's another one? Another word. Negotiator. Sorry? Negotiator. A negotiator? Yep. Yeah. Counselor. A counselor? A representative is a big part of it. And so he's going to compare that, how Jesus is better than the prophets, and then he compares them to the angels, and he win, Jesus wins that fight. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than Aaron. It's almost like he's, he's got this idea, let's do this comparison. And if you had any heroes here, they don't stand a chance. So he starts with the prophets like Elijah and Jeremiah, and oh, they're gone. Next, angels. Wow, they are wonderful, weren't they? Powerful beings. Yep. Who's next? Moses, he's the great hero. Nope. Well, maybe Joshua, his successor, because he led us into the land of promise. Nope, doesn't work. What about Aaron, the, the first priest? Nope. Jesus is better. And so he's doing these comparisons to encourage them and to, to exhort them that Jesus is better. And really, that's about as far as we're going to get in our five weeks together, uh, just looking at those comparisons and, and understanding them. Um, in, uh, and after that, then we begin to see that Jesus has uh, produced for us a better covenant. And what does that mean? The promise of a better covenant, how the old covenant was symbolic of the new and the new was ordained by the blood of Jesus and so forth. So it, it then begins to emphasize this new covenant, uh, something that I think in our society we don't understand. We don't understand covenant very well. And, and I'm looking forward to, to diving into more of that when we when we do the second half of the study. And then for the remainder of the book from chapter 10, verse 19 onwards, is we see the practical aspect of the book of Hebrews. How there's three appeals, an appeal to have faith, an appeal to have hope, and an appeal to love. It's kind of faith, hope, and love here. And, and then he begins to define faith and illustrate faith in that great chapter of Hebrews 11. The, the Hall of Faith or the Hall of Fame where we read about all these great, wonderful men and women of God who put their faith in Christ or put their faith in God. By faith, Enoch did this. By faith, Abraham did that. By faith, Moses did this. And so we see this wonderful illustration and it's, it's almost story time for kids to say, wow, look how God moved here. Then we can do the same thing. We can put the same faith in that same God. Because he hasn't changed. In Hebrews 13, he is the same God as yesterday, today, and forever. And just like Abraham and Moses and Sarah and Enoch and Joshua and Jacob and, and Isaac, they all trusted in God, we can do the same. And then there's a hope for what's to come, an encouragement to love other people, and then he has the closing remarks. Now, for the most part, I think the book of Hebrews is, is fairly straightforward. Um, if you understand especially who the author is writing to and what he's saying and why he's saying it, it, it pretty much is straightforward. There's, there's not many tricks and, and, um, and, and, and difficult passages to understand except in these warnings. And there's, there's five warnings in the, uh, in, the, in the book of Hebrews, and that's where people get tripped up on. Um, that's Hebrews 6 is, is probably the most famous warning where people get tripped up on. And the one in Hebrews 10 is the second most famous one. Uh, but there are five warnings in the book of Hebrews. And, and that's where people get confused. But if you, if you understand the, the warnings, then the rest of the book looks pretty straightforward. Um, 
So the five different warnings, the warning number one is do not neglect this salvation. Don't put it aside. Don't ignore it. After explaining how it's so great and so wonderful, he, he cautions the, the, the children of, of or the, the Jews here, the Christians, don't neglect it. Don't ignore it. Right. Yes. It's, it's chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. And so that's the first warning. And, uh, and we'll look at that warning uh, next week. Uh, warning number two, then, is don't miss out on the rest of God. And in, he explains it in chapters 3 and chapter 4, and explaining how, how the children of Israel crossing into Canaan is a picture for us. And not a picture of going into the sweet by and by of heaven, but a picture of living life today. And so the warning is don't miss out on the rest of God today. The peace of God, the the abundant life of God. And we'll get into this one in the third week. And in fact, uh, when we talk about this warning and, and really what the rest of God is, that's probably the most important night of all our classes together, because that's the key. That's, I mean, it's interesting to understand these warnings and so forth, but much more important to understand the rest of God and how do we enter into that rest. And so we'll be doing that in the third week. Uh, and then the fourth week we get into the, the one that's you know, the most debated, um, and that's the one in Hebrews 6. There are something like 14 different interpretations of Hebrews 6, uh, specifically verses 4 to 6, and, and we'll try to understand a little bit of what some of the major ones are and, and where they fall apart and, and then really what was the one that makes the most sense. Uh, but this is the sin of not going on to maturity, of, of remaining as immature Christians, baby Christians. And then the, the next uh, one, warning four, is found in, in chapter 10, verses 26 to, to 39. And this one's called the, not despising the gospel. To, uh, to not turn your back on, uh, on what, uh, what Jesus has done. And then finally, in chapter 12, it's do not deny the gospel. And, and really, all five warnings are all connected. It's, they're all pretty much saying the same thing in a slightly different way. There's some, there are some variations, but for the most part, they're all coming back to the same theme, the same idea, which is centered on, the, on the, the concept of the thinking about living by faith and now doing that. It, it's, it's not enough just to, to start off this life in Christ with faith and then move on in your own. Instead, we begin by faith and we continue on in faith. We live by faith. Faith is, is not a one-time deal, but a lifetime action. Does that make sense? Any questions at this point? Are you taping this? I am, yeah. Because I want to be a jerky. <laughs> well, either you're, you're getting it or a real confused bunch, and you don't even know where to begin to ask questions. So I'm going to hope for the, for the former, and, and if it's the latter, may God have mercy on our souls. <laughs> don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. No, yeah. The first warning was about, uh, about do not neglect the gospel. The salvation. Yeah. But that's for Christians, right? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, essentially. I mean, I think when, when we get to it next week, we'll see it more that there is, in some ways, it's a warning for non-believers uh, because non-believers are, are neglecting this, uh, the, this gospel. They are ig- ignoring it, not doing anything with it. And so there is a warning for non-Christians in there, but there's also a warning for Christians. And, and that's what I want you to see. Each of these warnings is really a warning to us. And... And they're not just a warning to the Jewish Christians, they're, they're a warning to you and I. And we should heed these warnings. Um, understanding the heart of the author here. He's got a pastor's heart. He's, he's writing to encourage and to strengthen. And, and it's interesting how when we get to these warnings, how he encourages us in spite of the, for the most part, some pretty bold statements that he makes. And so um, I'm looking forward. Yes. So he's doing that so we don't stand the we don't stay on the fence, but we keep on growing, we keep on maturing, we keep on living. Um, because, I mean, how many people here have arrived and, you know, figured out the Christian life and are all settled in there? <laughs> None of us have. So we're all on this journey, we're all on this path of continuing to grow. And, and what these warnings are is, is someone who has been on this path before us saying, I saw a pothole back there, and I wanted you to know about the pothole so you could avoid it, so you don't get stuck in it. I want you to know about uh, uh, this off-ramp here that looked really appealing. Don't go off. Stay on this path because there's nothing there that's, that's good. You're just going to end up in a ditch somewhere. And I'm going to warn you, ahead. there's a really sharp turn. So, you know, when you see that caution slow down sign, yeah, they're serious. It's not just, you know, for fun. Slow down. It's a tight turn. And so that's what this author of the book of Hebrews is doing for us. He's giving us some warnings to help us to continue to grow so that we continue to mature in our faith. I would like to study after like a little bit more about these warnings. Oh, we're going to, yeah, we're going to study all, all um, we'll get to the three of them because we're only going to get to the middle of Hebrews. So we'll get to, to the beginning of chapter eight uh, this time. And then in probably the fall, we'll, we'll finish the rest of the book. So we'll do warnings one, two, and three in these five weeks together. Yeah. And, and we'll look at them in, in great detail because uh, th- there's a lot of value, a lot of wisdom in there for us. Okay. Any other questions? I never realized that not going on to maturity was a sin. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. It's, it's, it's laziness. Mm-hmm. It's... it's uh, it's it's being satisfied with where we're at, and um, and there's always more. But I see the lack of going on to maturity because of the lack of confidence in the society that we have as believers. Because some of us think the preacher's up there and we're down there and we're not too much. So I think that's a barrier. Yeah, and, and a big part of, of going on to maturity is, is understanding what the writer is getting at, which is now live by faith in who this God is. Believe what you profess to believe. I mean, imagine, imagine Christians believed what they profess to believe. That God is God, God loves them, and God now lives in them to love the world. Would churches be different? Would, would communities be different? 
would we be able to keep them out of our churches? No. How, never mind the church. What about your family? If we believed what we profess to believe, would we be different people? Would our families be different? Would we treat our friends differently? Absolutely. And you know what? Wherever you are on this journey, that's okay. But let's go on. Let's move on to maturity and begin to believe what we profess to believe. Let's believe who God is, what He said about Himself, and what He said about us, and what He's wanting to do in us. Let's believe in that. Because the more we believe, the more we, we go on to maturity, the more that Christ lives in and through us. And so that's what we're, we're looking for. And that's really why, why this, this writer wrote the book, is to get these people to believe, to get them out of the trouble they're in, to encourage them with all, all that's going on. Because again, these people are facing incredible persecution. And with that persecution, there's doubt. How many people know it's easy to believe when everything's going well? When you just get the promotion and, and everyone says great job and loves you, it's easy to say, praise God. And then you sing that song, he gives and takes away. No problem singing it then, right? It's really, really simple. But then you discover that the promotion you got, well, that part of the company's now been discontinued. And now you're cut off because they replaced you already somewhere else. And now you're out of a job and you're sick uh, or your family member's sick, or you lost a family member, you have a rebellious child, and all of a sudden life is down the tubes. And now you got to sing that song again at church that Sunday. He gives and takes away. It's not so easy now. Our faith has now been tested. And that's where these Jewish Christians are. Their faith is being tested. They're going through a time of suffering. They're going through a time of persecution. And the pastor, the author of this letter, he's writing to them to encourage them. It's okay. Have faith. Believe what you profess to believe. Why? Because Jesus is better. Don't go back to the old ways. Don't go back to this. Don't go back to that. Trust in Jesus. You might think about going back to Judaism, but Jesus is so much better than that. You might think about trying to straddle the fence and do a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but don't do that. Jesus is better. He's what you need. You will not find what you're looking for anywhere else but Him. You keep saying believe what you profess to believe it, it <clears throat> without having taken this course in the past. It almost seems like... It, you could change it to live what you profess to believe mm -hmm. because the believing is there the living is sometimes a well and here's where I, I would question whether you believe it then right I mean I, I think if you it, the belief here that I, I'm saying believe what you profess to believe if you believed it you would do it that's, and we're going to see that in, in, after the break, that belief or faith is much more than just an intellectual concept. It's, it's far more than saying, I believe this. There is an action to it. There, there's far more to, to, to faith than just saying, these are the things, this is my, my statement of faith, my, my uh, you know, what we believe sort of thing. Well, if you believe it, now act on it. 
And that's really what I mean. So you're right. Live what you believe. But if more than that, believe it. Because if you believe it, then you'll live it, is what I'm getting at. So it's, we're saying the same thing. Sure. Yeah. So it has to get from our here to here? 18 inches? Uh, so, yeah. And then from here to out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going we're gonna to look at faith after the break, and, and I think you'll see what, what I'm getting at. This message was recorded by Crossways to Life. It is the desire of Crossways to Life to know Jesus deeper and disciple Christians to experience life in Him through the message of the cross. For more information about our ministry, upcoming courses and events, or how to contact us, please visit our website at www.crosswaystolife.org.